Pastor Cal Hester, lead pastor of Vine Life. And this is our podcast, The Empowered Word. I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope this message inspires you, builds your faith, and gives you perspective on what God is doing in your life. Please enjoy the message. The Lord is my shepherd, and because of that, I lack for nothing. Typically, when we are talking about this psalm, it is most popular for us to read it at funerals because it talks about walking through the darkest valley. It talks about facing the shadow of death and trusting God through that time. But actually, it's, it's very much in the heart of King David, a, a psalm for life, a psalm for living. Many of the things that are quoted there, that are prayed there, are the same things that Jesus prayed as he taught his disciples to pray. It's clear that they know the same Father. One of my favorite parts, I, I read this every day, usually multiple times during the day. But it was only just in the last couple of years that this part finally stood out to me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You know, for years I've thought of my enemy as being the person who hurts my feelings, the enemy is the person who makes my life difficult, the enemy is the person who's uh, encroaching on the sovereignty of my nation. Uh, my enemy is the one who intends to do me harm. The enemy is the one who takes me to court. And then one day it occurred to me that I actually don't have any enemies except sin and death. Sin and death are my only real enemies. They're your, your only real enemies. We have... Flesh and blood manifestations of those that oftentimes encroach on our lives in a way that cause us great pain and suffering, but they have the same common enemy that you and I have, sin and death. This table that we call communion is the table that Jesus prepared for us in the presence of our enemies. When you and I peel back that top layer and we grab hold of that wafer, we are remembering his body broken. You know, the body that was broken to defeat the stranglehold of death on us. the body that was broken to set us free so that one day in his return that you and I would live and reign with him forever. I want to invite you to come to the table that he has prepared for you in the presence of your enemies. Would you partake of the bread with me? We can peel back that second layer. And be reminded of his blood. The blood of the new and the everlasting covenant. The blood, the cup of that table. To wash away our sins. Conquering our second enemy. Would you partake in the table prepared for you? Lord, as we are partaking of communion, we're reminded that it is in memory of what you have already done. And so we join with the heart of David in crying out, you prepare a table for me. 
but we do so not as a people in a nation state like Israel, but as a people who have ex- had the gospel extended to them that were outside of the borders of Israel, who were a long way off, and we are reminded that our only real enemies are sin and death, and that you have vanquished them, and that you have promised you are coming back for us, that we might feast at your table forever. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. I hope that you are all doing well. It's good to see you this morning. Uh, I don't know how, what kind of weekend you've had. I've had kind of a crazy weekend, you know. Uh, it, it's been a good weekend. Uh, we had our life group uh, on, uh, on Friday night, had a good turnout. Uh, uh, we, uh, you know, we went crazy. We normally do tacos. We did fajitas. And, uh, and hung out and had a really good time. And uh, it was a great blessing. I appreciated that. Saturday morning, I, I got to do a wedding, you know, first thing in the morning, a wedding, and in fact, the Shermans are right over here. That, you don't often get people come the next day. You guys want to go ahead and stand for just a minute. So that's cool, because I, I think that's probably the first time that's ever happened, that I've done a wedding on a Saturday and anybody showed up on Sunday, so, I'm, you know, that's pretty exciting in itself, and, um, you know, and then, you know, leaving their house, uh, you know, I was putting my grandson in the car and then, you know, and, and put my, you know, iPad on the top and, you know, and took off on our way to go have some really good Italian food and, um, you know, um, and uh, I heard this thunk and I thought, well, that, that doesn't look good as I looked in the rearview mirror and I saw uh, their wedding license tumbling in the air, you know, and I thought, I got to go back and get that. So I got that, and I was still looking for the iPad when a monster truck found it. Those things are really tough. Did you know that I can still read? I mean, you know, it's through shattered glass and things sticking out like this out of the ends of it, but uh, man, those things are tough. Uh, And so I was able to retrieve everything and put it on. Um, Did I mention the other iPad was getting getting old? (laughs) You know, Uh, and so um, you know, I've been saving a long time for something else and uh and so i got to go buy me a new ipad it's really cool i you know uh so it's been an exciting weekend and then football last night anybody enjoy some football last night man that was some crazy football yesterday all the the wives are immediately going oh no i'm going to sleep now he's going to talk about football (laughs) not all the wives some of them are like yes so uh yeah great football i was very excited you know um Florida teams have done really well. You know, Florida State's got a big challenge today ahead of them. Anyhow, it's Memorial Day weekend. Summer is semi-officially over, right? You know, excuse me, I said, what did I say, Memorial Day? (laughs) Memorial Day begins summer, even though it's 15 days before summer, or what, 16 days before summer, 20 days before summer, something like that. And then you get in the fall, you know, you've got Labor Day ends the summer, even though it's like 15, 20 days, you know, what, it's 21st, right? So anyhow, it's early, uh, but we all know this, the real score. Once the football starts, summer's over. So, um, <laughs> all right, well, we need to talk about really important things. So uh, let me invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12 as we get started this morning. You're using a uh, your uh, app or your tablet, you know that you didn't get run over or is only partially <laughs> run over. Uh, please set that to silent for the sake of those around you. We're going to be in the English Standard Version. I am. Uh, please use whatever translation you like best. That's the one I like best because you're reading it. 
And, uh, you know, as we start this morning, um, you know, I, I want to remind you because of the, the importance of this bigger context as you're, you're uh, pulling up your, your Bible passage there. You know, as we've gone through this book, we've really been seeing, you know, the Bible in miniature all just through this one letter. Uh, in those first chapters, uh, we were talking about creation and about what God did in making that creation good and why it is a testimony to us of God's goodness and kindness, uh, of who God is, His nature. And, and, so, uh, and then through that, through that creation, we also have revealed to us what is good and right and normal as well as the things that are not. And, and so that is revealed right there in creation. Uh, we have this sense of, of deeply knowing within us as we look at the splendor of creation. And from it, we know that God is good, that he gives good gifts to his children. And from it, we recognize that many things are out of step with his good creation and that he's bringing all things back together. Then we get to chapters 5 through 8, and he begins to talk about this whole aspect of remaking creation, that he is working in the physical cosmos to bring about uh, revelation to us, uh, uh, not only of his goodness and kindness, but of his faithfulness, that even though the creation has gone astray, even though things are going in the wrong direction in many ways, that God is at work in that creation, and it brings us to a crescendo there in chapter 8, telling us that even the entire cosmos is longing for the revelation of the sons of God, longing for that day in which uh, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that God, uh, you know, that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's longing for that day. Those things are longing to happen. And um, uh, then we get there in chapters 9 through 12, and we begin to talk about the transformational process. In chapter 11, we focused on the heart of God toward not only those who were afar off, but even his ongoing commitment to the perseverance of the saints, uh, even those who were faithless. And that's a, a, a sense of assurance for you and I that whether we are faithful or unfaithful, that God is still faithful, that what you and I are banking on in His Word is still true, it's still right, uh, that He does not forsake us, He doesn't leave us, He doesn't abandon us. Uh, not that that's a license then for you and I to do that, because He does talk about that He will deal with us on the issue of faithlessness, uh, even as He dealt with Israel, He makes that point to us. But it's driving home the specific point that what, it, what we are depending on is not on our ability to be faithful, but on the simple fact that He is faithful. And then that's what gives our faith real meaning. Now, last week we started into chapter 12, and it, you know it's just such a densely packed chapter like chapter 8 is. Uh, we spent about three weeks in chapter 8. It looks like we're going to be a little bit longer in chapter 12. Uh, last week, uh, we got through all of verse 1. Um, it is my goal to finish verse 2 today. And I, I warned you that I, at verse 2 was in my dissertation, and I did, you know, like 60 pages, and my average message is about three pages. So, uh, you know, at an hour for three pages... You're in for a little... No, I'm kidding. I'm, no, I'm not going to do that to you. Uh, actually, we're going we're gonna to get through it today, I'm, I feel quite certain. Um, but, you know, holding all this together, there's so much to address, um, but it really is setting the stage for everything else that we're going to cover uh, in this book, but it's really at the heart of this letter uh, in every way. So, all that said... Let's jump into Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read the entire chapter because I think it's, it's important for holding things together. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version. Please follow along in whatever translation you have. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, 
not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, through many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, then in proportion to your faith, if it's service in your serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome evil by evil, but overcome evil with good. Blessed be the reading of God's holy word. <clears throat> so much in that passage. So last week, you know, we hit pretty hard on the juxtaposition of two words, living and sacrifice. If you we're here, uh, you will remember, if you were not here, let me just kind of fill you in to hopefully make some sense as we go, go forward. Um, but we were talking about how a live, being a living sacrifice is at once both profound and an oxymoron. Because the word for sacrifice uh, makes it clear that we're talking about the kind of sacrifice that is being put on an altar in the sense of that it is being killed, it's, it's blood drained, it's life consumed, it's being uh, burned up on the altar as an offering. And so that imagery of dying to self, uh, but living for Messiah, to be living and to put yourself there, uh, it, it creates a, a, such an unusual tension there that there's this expectation that what we're talking about is you and I dying to ourselves and living for Messiah, fundamentally there in verse 1. Then we wrapped up verse 1 talking about that this is spiritual worship, and as it says it in the ESV, uh, uh, other translations, uh, you know, King James, New Living, some others, acceptable worship. Uh, I think the NIV says proper worship. But we talked about the fact that actually that the word there, logision, is from which we get the word logos, or logos, depending on who your Greek teacher was. And uh, uh, yes, they, every one of them contradicted each other along the, over the years. But um, you know, this idea that Jesus is the logos, he is the fundamental uh, uh, essence of everything, and everything is built upon him. In fact, then we read about him being the Logos in John chapter 1, and it says that through him all things were made, and nothing that was made, nothing that has come into being, came into being 
that he did not make. And so we understand this, then, that he is the very fundamental essence of all things that were made. And, and I pointed out that word lego, we use it in the idea of logic and our understanding of how things are ordered in the world. We use it to refer to those little horrible things called legos that people step on in the middle of the night and scream uh, and, uh, uh, and that children also use to build really cool creations. Uh, but Lego, the idea, the building of all things, it's, it, it's an essential block in which things are put together. And so we have this concept, and so it says actually that, that it is the logo, it, it is talking about having logos response to what has been revealed about who God is, and, uh, and then you and I, it, it, what it's saying is, is the only logical response that you and I could have to understanding who God is and what He's done in the universe would be that we would become a living sacrifice. That we would spend ourselves, uh, as Paul said, poured out upon the altar like a drink offering. We would spend ourselves uh, absolutely consumed with the things of God, who He is, uh, that we would spend our lives in worship of Him, that everything we are, everything we do from here uh, would be in the expectation that that is an expression of worship. In other words, worship not being just what we did earlier in singing some songs, or even in communion, you know, trying fighting with the little package and but that worship in the truest sense is a life lived to the very glory of God. And then the, it continues to be expressed, of course, in things like singing and, uh, and, and through communion and all of that, not negating that. In fact, uh, we're urged in Hebrews not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. But still, that ultimate understanding as we get there in verse 1 to be a living sacrifice is the only logical course of action. So when we pick up here in verse 2 today, we're actually finishing the thought from verse 1 of what it means to be a living sacrifice that is holy and pleasing to God. And he begins with another juxtaposition between two words, but actually in two phrases kind of put together is the idea of being conformed or being transformed. Those two words, transformed and conformed, are intentionally in contrast with one another as you come into that text there in verse 2. In this context, conformed is a, the, the, you know, the, the, a very physical word that you and I think of all the time when, we, when we're thinking about conforming something, we're pressing something down and into a shape. Maybe you're using clay or something like that and you're, you're thinking about what you want to create and you are, you're shaping it. It's, it's that kind of physical word. Uh, and so uh, it means do not be molded or pressed into a shape or an image, right? And so the image that we're, he's calling on us not to be pressed into is the the image of the world. Now, even though it's a physical word, I'm not talking about, in nowhere is Paul implying, don't be round. I just thought I'd throw that one in for fun. Okay. Um, although maybe you shouldn't be really round. But, you know, anyhow, uh, you know, but uh, uh, rather, look, he's talking about a concept of time or an epoch of time. Do not be confirmed to the eon, to the age. We put the word world in there in some of our translations, trying to convey this juxtaposition in our minds of what it means to be secular or whether it means to be sacred, terms that actually neither one are used in the Bible. That is actually thoughts that we subscribe to. Those are actually philosophical concepts. They're not biblical concepts. So the, the idea here in, the, in, the, in the, the, the whole thing of not being conformed to the world is actually what he's saying is don't be conformed to the spirit of the age. Don't be like the world around you in that sense, but not talking about something like that the world in, in, is essentially bad. Remember, he who created it called it good. 
For God so loved the world that he sent his son. So he's talking about an epoch of time, and he says, don't be conformed to that, but instead be transformed. Now, that word transformed is probably the most significant word there in, in that context. Uh, it's the word from which we get metamorphosis. I want you to think of, you know, like uh, ugly caterpillar becoming a beautiful butterfly. However, when you and I think of an ugly caterpillar, somebody's already offended, I'm sorry. Your beautiful caterpillar becoming an, a beautiful butterfly, we think primarily in terms of physical. But the word metamorphosis is the idea of a wholesale change. It's like it's becoming something entirely different. So actually, when that word is used uh, in, uh, in uh, Hellenistic religion and things like that, it's usually communicating the idea of this, like when one of the gods pretends to be a human being so that they can have sex with a human being. That's how it's usually used in pagan literature. They metamorphosized to become human, from being a spirit deity, to become a human, took on a form to take advantage of people, you know, and really wonderful. It is only used in the New Testament two different times. Both times, it's Paul. 2 Corinthians 3.18, and then here in Romans 12.2. And in both times, he's talking about wholesale changes that one cannot necessarily see with the eye, but that are just as dramatic as that of a caterpillar and a butterfly. So let the concept of being a new creation be something in your minds akin to warm, fuzzy feelings or simply an attitude. When he's talking about you and I being transformed in the image of Christ, when he is talking about you and I being a new creation, He's saying that even though there is not a physical uh, change necessarily, that there is a wholesale change of who, that we are becoming completely new in, on our entire orientation of who we are, of how we interact with the world. We are really a new creation. Now, I know invariably some of you are thinking to yourself, when does that happen? Because I would like to see more of that and less of the old me. So now, he's going to tell us how that looks like, how it works out in terms of our experience. So we're not just philosophically new, we are spiritually and therefore wholly new. So, what does it mean to be transformed? That directive, be transformed, is very specific in that it cannot mean, does not mean, just let it happen. It is a command written in the imperative. That means that you have an active role to play in being transformed. When he says, you be transformed, he's including your active participation in the process. It can't, it doesn't just happen like, Poof, fairy dust. It's not like you and I become a Christian and then the Holy Spirit goes, poof. Now everything is completely great about you and everything is wonderful about you and you're never going to sin again, you're never going to do anything wrong again or, or something. And so that's probably more akin to the reality which you were thinking already because you're thinking to yourself, when does the poof happen? Like, when does, you're like, please, poof me, right? I mean, just like, please, Especially when you're like in a fight with your spouse and you're thinking, oh God, please poof me before something really stupid comes out of my mouth. Poof. Everybody wants poof. But the invitation, what Paul says is that you and I have an active role. He, there is a command, an imperative command, you and I, to be engaged in the process. You be transformed 
by the renewing of your minds. Now, that begins a multifaceted discussion on what does that mean. How do I participate? How do I become the person who knows and does God's good, pleasing, and perfect will? And part of the, the, the reality for, of this, when people are wrestling with, with this, involves the discussion of spiritual warfare. Now, he doesn't talk about spiritual warfare, particularly in this context. You and I could look at some things in Ephesians and other places. I'm not going to get real deep in the weeds on this, but I will simply point out that over and over again throughout the New Testament, but especially in the writings of Paul, that the primary battlefield in spiritual warfare is your mind. Again, we're talking about news about mind, not brain. The primary place of spiritual warfare is the mind. Paul repeatedly tells people to take their thoughts captive and to meditate on the things that are good and lovely. The Bible regularly tells us that as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. The heart, or in this case, the noose, the mind being the seat of the will, of the humanity, of our emotions. As you are in your inner man, your heart, your thoughts, your heart, right? Remember, whenever it talks in the Bible about your heart, it's not talking about this organ here going dum, 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 dum. That word is not the same word whatsoever. In fact, in the Old Testament, when it talks about, when we translate it, your heart, it's actually talking about your kidneys. The physical word that's used is kidneys. You know how you, how you relate to that is that Hebrew is a phenomenological language. It uses phenomenon from everyday life to point to things. I've talked about this before. The word for compassion in Hebrew is the same word as a woman being pregnant. So if you read that a man is pregnant, you know, no, it's not a miracle. It's talking about him having compassion in a moment. Well, when it's talking about the seat of the emotions, when it's talking about heart, it refers to the kidneys. Because the first time you ever go through something really difficult and, you're, and you feel it deeply, oftentimes where do you feel it? Yeah. Right? Your lower back. One of the things chiropractors tell you all the time, most of the time when somebody does some little thing, and, uh, and then they throw their back out and they go, I don't know why. All I did was bend over to pick up that one little piece of paper. All I did was turn like this. And, it, and they'll say, well, it's usually because there's something wrong emotionally that's going on. And then it reacts back here in your lower back. It's, it's phenomenological. We're looking at a phenomenon and pointing to something spiritual or physical with that, that how it communicates a, a concept, an idea. Here, when he's saying that we need to be active in the participation of the renewing of our minds, he's not talking about our brains, although it includes that. He's not talking about your heart. He's not talking about your emotions, although it includes all those things, your thought life. He's talking about the, the seat of who we are in our body, soul, and spirit. So that does not discount your emotions. They are important. It does not discount your thoughts. They are important. They are part of who you are. But instead, it's the idea of wrapped up in the seat of the totality of who you are, the epicenter of who you are. Now, one of the things we do know in the way your mind works your emotions will not feel you into obedience. So you and I can have an emotional experience and there are some short-term effects usually in which we might like yield ourselves to something like an altar call. Uh, you know, I was talking to a, a friend of mine the other day and he said, man, you know, he says, every summer camp I got saved. You know, my dad was a preacher, and he says, and we would have, and they would just put on this, a very emotional summer camp, and he goes, and you know, you're sleep deprived, you've been eating sugary foods all week long, and by the end of the week, like, you know, your adrenals are shot, your mind is shot, you're 
you know, and he says, and you've probably been staring at that pretty girl like way too much and thinking about way. And he goes, you get to the end of the week and they tell you that you're, you're, you're sinful. And you're like, yeah. There's an emotional response in that moment. Now, I'm not discrediting emotional response. Please hear me. But emotional responses, like we have an instant response but here's the thing, the reason like sometimes people get saved every week or, and things like that is because there's an emotional response and they are re, 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 responding to that internally what's going on, but there's no intent to follow through. I, I know in the moment they feel like there's you know, tears and snot, you know, it <laughs> lubricates the decision process making at that moment. But the reality is, is that unless there's something concrete, deep-seated within the mind, within the heart of the person, within our central core identity, then we don't walk those things out. We have an emotional experience, and then nothing follows through. Don't raise your hands, but anybody been there? Hello? Anybody here ever had a gut-level emotional response? Thank you for the honest response back there. Okay, yeah, you know, we, I, I, let me tell you, last night, when, Oklahoma, when, 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 when um, Ohio State and Notre Dame were battling out, I was having an emotional response. Last night, when Florida and, you know, Utah were battling out, I had an emotional response. But it really didn't change anything. Hello? I didn't make a decision to do life differently, except maybe to get to bed earlier next time. But um, you don't feel your way into doing God's will not bad. It's really great when it's coupled with a commitment in, our, in the seat of our emotions, in, in the seat of our humanity, when we have emotion and the mind working together. Now, here's the thing. Many of you can appoint to moments where it seems emotions are in control where your mind is yielding to the emotions in a moment, like my friend talking about summer camp, like, you know, getting enraged over your team losing or your politician losing or whatever else, and then you do something stupid. And you think, well, I couldn't help myself. I'm sure nobody's ever said that. Um, I couldn't help myself and the truth is, is what you did was that you let your mind be, your, your mind decided to let your emotions rule the day. But your emotions cannot rule the day unless your mind agrees to it. Because your mind is not limited to your brain, because it doesn't exclude your emotions, this is how we establish both knowing, real knowledge, and doing. That is why in spiritual warfare in the New Testament, it always begins with the mind. Sometimes it begins, it, it be, you know, whenever it's talking about that, it's talking about how your emotions are beginning to inform your thought process. Sometimes it's events that when you are philosophically kind of pondering those things that it begins to work into who you are, but ultimately your decision to do the right thing or to not do the right thing will is seated right there in the mind. So it's important that you and I like, that you and I would respond in our minds in this whole thing of transformation. The other thing is, is that it tells us everyone can do it. It is significant because there is an expectation that every follower of Messiah can do this. Every follower of Messiah has been so endowed as a new creation that they can actively participate, not only in being renewed, but also in discerning the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. That is nothing like religion. 
religion, in its truest sense, is a political system that seeks to control masses through divine directives. It does not trust people to know and hear God for themselves. Because that would be useless to the powers and authorities doing the controlling, trying to get a desired outcome. You, hearing from the divine and individually leaning into that, you individually responding to that, doesn't empower and enrich authorities. One of the things that is key, and I've said this over and over again, and as we're trying to teach people to be authentic disciples of Christ, includes that you would pray and seek God for yourself and move the power away from external authorities. In other words, uh, when you read the Word of God and you are making conclusions uh, that uh, there are some things that are very clear and laid out, but sometimes somebody comes to me and says, gee, I feel like the Lord is telling me to sell everything and give it to the poor. Now, religion says, well, yes, but only if you give it to my 501c3. Religion says, no, don't do that, just continually to regularly tithe to my 501c3. But when we are trusting people to be disciples of Jesus and we're trying to teach them to hear the Spirit of God for themselves and they say, I think I'm supposed to sell everything and give it to the poor, we go, wow, that, there's nothing about that that contradicts the Word of God? You really believe that? That's what you heard? I mean, let's, I'm going to pray along with you. I, I want you to be certain that that's what you heard from the Lord. But here's the, com the, the, the commitment I want you to hear from the Spirit of God for yourself so that you will respond to Him rather than to me. That's discipleship. That is building an authentic relationship with Jesus Christ for yourself. Now, we are in community and we can share and talk to one another and, and, and we, we, there is a sense of shared commonality, but here's the thing is that if we are actually teaching people to be disciples of Christ, if we're actually teaching people these things, then what we want you to do in renewing your mind is not subscribe to our particular set of core doctrines and our way of doing things and our organizational stuff and our this and our that and is that what we want you to do is that you would renew your mind because you would be passionately in pursuit of Him. You would want to know His Word for Himself. You would want to be able to hear from the Spirit of God yourself. And as the Spirit of God is speaking to you and moving you, that you would be willing in pursuit of Him to give your all to that, whatever that looks like. That you would be 100% sold out for Jesus. That is the end goal. Now, if that happens to be that you're here and all that, well, that's awesome. I'm looking forward to seeing what God's going to do in you and through you. But the reality is, is that I don't need you to just subscribe to my program. And I don't need you to just do something because Hal said something like that's that's control. I have no desire to control you. I can barely control myself. Hello? I, I don't understand micromanaging in religion because I, you know, like, I've just got to say, like, that sounds exhausting, number one. And number two, the reality is most of the people who are busy minding everybody else's business need to be minding their own. You can go ahead and clap. That'll, that's like that. <laughs> So we have our communal responsibilities to one another, right? I mean, through the text right there, multiple times the phrase one another is used. So we're not going to stop taking care of one. Actually, if you are passionately pursuing a relationship with Christ, if you are passionately being transformed by the renewing of your mind, if you're passionately pursuing Christ, I don't see how you divorce yourself from the church. Because there's 95 one another commands in the New Testament that you can't fulfill. One of them simply being, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. 
but spur one another on to love and good deeds. You can't do that all by yourself. So I, I'm not worried about those things. I, I want people to be pursuing that relationship with Christ. But what it does mean is this, that you and I can, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and in the reality of being a new creation, we can do that. You and I can be renewed, be transformed. In this text, Paul does not explain a lot of the hows. I wish he would have gone into a long discourse at this point, although I suspect the book would have been a whole lot longer. He touches on it on several other places, but listen, the whole weight of the Bible points to the role of spiritual disciplines to reformat our view of the world and to realign our understanding of God and creation. But the expectation is, is that you and I need to take this in and then refocus our lives and rebuild our lives around those things, that we yield ourselves to those things so that we think differently about the world, so that we see the world differently, so that we are looking at the world through God's eyes, and so you know, that we would participate with Him, that you and I would have a prayer life that is not about going in with the long laundry list of wants. The Lord is my shepherd and I lack for nothing. But instead a sense of like, God, what are you doing in the world and how can I join you? That begins to reframe everything. How I use everything, what I do in my job. Like, do you realize that God can use your job? Butcher, baker, candlestick maker, God is able to use your job. You can be the postmaster, you can be a filmmaker, you can be a mechanic, you can trim hedges. God can use your job. So we use these spiritual disciplines to help shape, to renew the mind. Now, because it doesn't expand on it right here, and, uh, you know, we, and, and I don't have, it's very difficult to do on a Sunday morning, um, I'm going to do a workshop this fall calling it Functional Christian Spirituality. Some of you took it under a different title in the fall of 19, but uh, I, I think this is a better title because functional, I, I don't want to tell everybody, like, do these spiritual disciplines. If you do A plus B, you get C. It doesn't work that way. This is really looking at how God has put you together and uh, understanding the role of spiritual disciplines and applying them in a way, a healthy way in your life so that you can better fulfill this command, that you can obey what he's talking about. How do I renew my mind? And so I can't really do that in here on a Sunday morning. I, I, you know, I interview everybody, talk about the different ways in which how you connect with God, how your uniqueness of your personality and, and uh, your experiences form the way that you understand and how the things that you immediately connect with God on and the some things that are difficult or hard for you, like for me, for instance, I am naturally uh, drawn to the biblical text. It is not natural for me to press into uh, uh, supernatural kind of experiences, and so I have to do some leaning that way. I have to work at those things. But when it comes to the biblical text, I can read all day, and it'd be really easy for me, as someone who's oriented that way, to just always give an assignment to people who are being discipled, just here, read this, just read this, just read this, just read this, and the person says, it's not, this isn't happening for me. Anybody here not a reader? Thank you for your honesty, right? There's a number of you that are not readers. I'm a reader. If you're not a reader, I'm not going to start there with you. I'll give you some, a couple of short texts to memorize for your own sake. But I'm going to start someplace else with you. 
So if you want to learn how to like figure out this so that you can do it for you instead of trying to do it for the church or trying to do it for some person that's like trying to make you in their own image, like I want you to be who God created you to be. So let me invite you to join me for that. All right. Well, I don't want to take up all the time on a, com- on a commercial, but um, listen, without spiritual disciplines, you cannot obey this command. You plain just don't have the tools to do the job. Then that brings us to the idea of testing things. This whole aspect of knowing here in the text. Now, I'm not going to bother to tell you the Greek word, but if you really want to know, you can see me after the message. But the, the point in this word here for knowing and doing the will of God is, is, is uh, centered in this whole idea of, um, of testing. In other words, he's not saying that you get to know it in, a, you know, in, in some kind of uh, 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 mysterious, uh, mystical connection with the divine. But instead, he's talking about something that happens out of spending time with God and his people. I'm not downplaying the supernatural, but I'm, not, I'm also not talking about bootstrap effort. What I'm saying is that there's you know, that there isn't some kind of secret sauce kept under lock and key for the uniquely spiritually gifted. If you want to be prepared to do the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God, you're going to have to spend real time with God and His people. You're going to have to put in some real effort if you want to grow. That's what Paul's saying. But an unwillingness to grow, the unwillingness to work at it, should then be a warning sign to us about our state of maturity and relationship with God. In other words, quit waiting for poof. Poof isn't in the text. You go, well, you know, the Apostle Paul, he had a poof. I mean, like, Holy Spirit downloaded everything. You do realize he spent his entire life studying Torah, and then whenever his eyes were opened, he understood how it all went together. Real effort, it's going to take you real effort if you want to grow in your relationship with God. I've heard people say to me over the years, I would, do, I would, I would give my whole life to know the Bible like you do. Well, I have. There's no secret sauce. I didn't get some secret download. I've just spent the last 30 years studying this, like, constantly. And if you want to know His good, pleasing, and perfect will, if it really is the epicenter of who you are, if you are really defining your life vis-a-vis Jesus Christ, King of the universe, you're going to have to invest. Otherwise, I call BS. That bull stuff. It stinks. But church, we cannot constantly talk about how the world is going to hell in a handbasket, and then as the church, like we won't make any effort to change ourselves Look, statistically, we are no different. We actually have a higher rate of divorce now. We don't cheat on our taxes any less. We don't go to jail any less. We don't have any less alcoholism or drug addiction. We're kidding ourselves if we think we can just keep going in this mode of just playing church and going on Sunday morning and and like thinking somehow... Poof is going to happen one day. Poof doesn't come. You know, the early church, when you get into Acts chapter 2, I'm way out going, I got to get, get back on point here, but Acts chapter 2, man, they spent how often together? Every day to see about the apostles' teachings. And we're like worried if I run over. 
Church, I don't say that because I, I want you to be entertained by my preaching. But there is a grave reality for the church of Jesus Christ in 21st century America that we're worried about like the doors are going to close or that people don't like us anymore and oh, we're pushed to the margins and, and, and my favorite political party isn't doing what I want them to do and oh, wine, wine, wine. Church, the invitation is for you and I to renew our minds. This is what real worship looks like. We become a living sacrifice. We pour out ourselves. We die to ourselves and we live for Him and we commit ourselves to this idea that we will be transformed. We invest ourselves. We pour out our lives not only in the sense of emptying out all of the garbage and all the junk, but then we pour ourselves into the things of the kingdom, of doing the heart and the will and the goodness of God, that we love his word, that we love to spend time and worship and, and knowing him and spending time with him. We have this experiential knowledge of where we encounter God, not just in our heads, but our hearts, our whole being is absolutely radically transformed. He says that is the only logical response if you actually understand the gospel. And this thing about just going to church is the most illogical thing there is. Talking with our small group the other night, they said, well, maybe when persecution comes, can I just point out to you that when you get in the book of Revelation, the church in Laodicea was under heavy persecution, but they were wealthy and they were uh, at ease in comparison to everyone else around them. And so even as they were being pressed on a little bit, they just kind of like skirted the issues and they just like did whatever was socially acceptable. And so he says, look, about all the other churches, he was talking about how he was going to do for them or all these things, but he gets to... Laodicea, and he goes, but you, I'm going to spew out of my mouth. The wealthiest, most comfortable church in all of the world, while the rest of the church was being persecuted, was Laodicea, and he said, I'm sick of you. Your attitude stinks. You're selfish. You're self-centered. Paul would have said, you refuse to invest yourself in being transformed. You're just doing church. You're waiting for the poof. And the poof doesn't come. It's not logical that you and I would continue to just wait for the poof that never comes. The only logical conduct would be for you and I to be a living sacrifice, not just singing songs, not just going to church, but that our whole being, heart, mind, and soul would be transformed by His presence, by His power, by His Word, by our worship, even by our engagement with one another, living our lives in that one another kind of spirit deeply engaged in the biblical sense of what it means to belong to him i could expound a whole lot more but listen from a practical standpoint authentic christian faith will engage you body soul and spirit it'll engage you both brain and heart and we would not simply be a people who believe a list of facts or who divorce those facts from their feelings, but a people who are holistically engaged with God in the cosmos and that the consistent witness throughout the letter of Romans is that that 
is what real Christianity is like. And the consistent witness throughout the letter of Romans is when we disengage from God in his cosmos, and the, the Bible says, that's not good. And that's the witness of not only the entire Bible, but all of life. So if you're asking yourself, how do I respond to this message? Well, I guess one part of it is you could sign up for Kingdom U this fall and start doing some hard work. That's my invitation. Actually, it's not a class. I'm not going to like lecture the whole time. Most of the time, if you were in it, you remember that we spent, I spent a little time lecturing, but most of the time you're doing the hard work in the room. It's a workshop. That's why I call it a workshop. That operative word is work. Second, maybe you begin by memorizing this passage of Scripture right here to start with. Not because you're word-based, but because you want to let that truth sink into you and think about, what, is it, what does it mean for me to be transformed? Like, how, how does that, where's that happening? And you begin just that, that first baby steps of engaging in the idea of, I'm going to, what does it mean for me to be a living sacrifice? And you begin, you just take that like a piece of candy, like hard candy, and you pop it in your mouth, and then you just ruminate on it. You worry about it. That's what meditation is, just positive worry. You already know how to worry, I'm sure of it. This meditation is just positive worry. Let that roll around in your mind, over your, over your spiritual tongue, so to speak, and, and let it begin to do its work in your spirit. Third thing you could do is you could get some prayer today. So if you're wrestling with any aspect of renewing your mind, it could be spiritual warfare. Like that's a real thing, spiritual warfare. It could be a lack of discipline. I'm sure that there are a few people who would say, I lack discipline. It could be a lack of direction, right? I just don't know how to start. And every time I start, it like doesn't, it doesn't work out. Maybe you start always over there in Genesis. You're going to say to yourself, I'm going to read Genesis through Revelation. And every time you get to Leviticus, you quit. Um, and so I'd like to suggest to you there's a better plan um, to help you with that uh, so you don't keep doing that. But lack of direction, lack of discipline, could be spiritual warfare. But here's what I think. I can't imagine that you've been coming to church on Sunday morning because you wanted everything just to stay status quo. So if you need some prayer this morning from other members of the church for doing the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God, I just want to invite you to go ahead and stand up for a moment. Let us pray for you. All right, look around you. There's some people standing up. If you would, please, let's go to them. Remember before, don't just lay hands on them. Ask them for permission. You know, don't be uh, assuming. And then ask them what they need prayer for. Let me invite you to go pray with the people around you right now. While we're praying for those folks, I'm going to ask um, any uh, prayer team members who are uh, not engaged praying with somebody else, if you go ahead and come to the front. So I got a strong sense this morning as I was praying that... Um, the Lord wants to touch some folks with uh, some chronic either stomach or intestinal issues, chronic ones. 
could be related to digestion, could be related to immune deficiency, ulcer, Crohn's. Um, if that's you this morning, I want to invite you to come up and get some prayer from the prayer team members. Uh, I know that can be uh, kind of personal, and so we're just going to like leave that that way um, for anybody who'd like to get prayer for that. And um, with that said, let's, uh, let's stand together. And so, Father God, we thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you for your word and for your instruction. And, Lord, our, our hope and desire is that we would be like you. And yet there is so much competing with that desire. And so, Lord, I'm praying that today uh, you would uh, fortify us in our inner man to take concrete steps towards changing the status quo, that we would not wait for poof, but that we would be committed to digging in and, be, and getting to know you, to know your presence, your spirit, that we would be a people of prayer, that not just in laundry lists, but uh, people who are relating to you, beginning to understand who you are and what you're doing in our lives that we would be a people of expectation for you to work in us and through us, that we would be committed to the things that help us to renew our minds so that we can do your good, pleasing, and perfect will. We believe that if you invited us, that you intended for us to be able to do it, that you did not make an empty invitation, and so, Lord, I pray that you would work here in and among us today. Prepare our hearts, fortify our spirits, and put us to the work of the kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me encourage you, if you need prayer, to come up and get prayer. Otherwise, if you want to hang out and talk, please do so in the lobby for the sake of those coming up for prayer. God bless you. I hope you enjoyed our podcast today. If you did, there's two things you could do for me. First, subscribe to our channel. That way the most recent podcast will always be in your feed ready when you are. And secondly, if this ministry has impacted you, would you help us to continue to reach others by clicking on the link in the description to give now. Until next time, thank you so much for listening to The Empowered Word.